We started it in June. We said, take the month of July off Facebook. We told companies, don't advertise on Facebook for the month of July. And when we started the campaign, we had, we didn't have a single company lined up. I mean, it was very wow. audacious. Three weeks later, we had over 1,100 companies, the biggest brands in the world. Incredible. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, So why were Starbucks. they so receptive, do you think? What, like, I'll tell you exactly yeah, why. Because we gave them examples of like white supremacist and anti-Semitic and racist content on Facebook, like flighted against their ads. Yeah, that's pretty convincing. So here's an Amazon ad, you know, next to a dis like a bloody truck that says, let's go get the next George Floyd. Or... Here's a Salesforce ad or a Verizon ad and so on and so forth. And you put that out there and Howard Schultz says, I don't want Starbucks advertising alongside the Nazis. But that's what Facebook was doing. Wow. And, you know, like I've talked to them many times. I had a conversation once with Mark and he said around all of this, I think maybe this is in the book. And he said, you know, Jonathan, a few years ago, n all of the hate content on Facebook was user reported, he said to me. Today, 88% is, is caught by our AI before users even see it. So I think we're doing pretty good. And I, was, and I said, okay, well, I used to be an executive at Starbucks. We didn't get to say 88% of our coffee doesn't have poison in it. So we think we're doing pretty good. This week on Forward, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League and author of the new book, It Could Happen Here, Jonathan Greenblatt joins us. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Forward podcast, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League and the author of the new book, It Could Happen Here, my friend, John Greenblatt. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Uh, well, congratulations on this book. Uh, it's an achievement. It's frightening. Uh, I think most Americans, unfortunately, sense that it could happen here. Yeah. What prompted you to take uh, the time to, to write this book? Well, I guess I could tell the story about the book sort of by stepping back. So I've been the CEO of ADL for about six and a half years, give or take. But I'm the, I come to this work as the grandson of a Holocaust survivor from Germany. And my grandfather, my great-grandfather, fought in the First World War. Germany was the only country that my family ever knew. And, you know, before the rise of the Third Reich, they never would have guessed that, uh, again, the only country that they knew would one day turn on them, regard them as enemies of the state, destroy everything that they ever loved, slaughter almost their entire network of family and friends, and force them to come. My grandfather, everyone else died come to the United States as he did as a refugee. And that one day, I mean, when he was a young man, he couldn't have guessed that his grandchildren, me and my brother and my cousins would be born in America, never. And I come to this work as the husband of a political refugee from Iran. And, you know, my wife and her family came here when she was 19, like in wow. 1989, maybe a little, maybe 18. But the point is that, you know, Iran was the only country they ever knew. And before the rise of, you know, the Islamic Republic, and Khomeini's fascism, they never would have guessed that one day the country would regard them as enemies of the state, destroy everything that they ever loved, and force them 
to come to flee and come to this country as refugees. I mean, my father-in-law never would have guessed that my kids and my nieces and nephews, that his grandchildren would be born in America. So I wrote this book because my own history tells us, and you know, every you know, the world lets us know and reminds us that it could happen here. And if you and I, Andrew, want our grandchildren to be born in this country, we've got to fight for what we have. And we're foolish to think that democracy is preordained. We're foolish to think that we're somehow immune, not just from intolerance, but from the kind of catastrophes we're seeing play out around the world. And, you know, we got to be in it to win it. We got to do something. Now, the subtitle of your book is Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. I have to say, my friend, I think you might have the hardest job there is. <laughs> and I say this because uh, you and I have both started and founded nonprofits. Yep. Uh, this is a different kind of nonprofit. I mean, the Anti-Defamation League is the most prominent anti-hate organization with a storied history. But uh, I feel like it means that you are on the front lines all of the time. Yeah. That any time there's any kind of episode, uh, unfortunately, ranging from all the way from a mass casualty event or, or a shooting to someone uh, making a misstatement, that can be construed as hateful, you all get called. And I have to imagine that uh, it, it, it must be like you are being bombarded by uh, these kind of experiences all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say it's definitely a complicated job. I mean, I think, look, the ADL is an institution, as you said. It's actually the oldest anti-hate organization in the country. It was founded in 1913. So I feel a great deal of responsibility when I think about the legacy that I'm responsible for. As someone who's, you said, like he's been an entrepreneur and been an innovator, now I'm in charge of this entity and it feels like very portentous and really, you know, a burden. And you're right. I mean, from like, from Whoopi Goldberg to Pittsburgh, right? Like there is a constant, you know, set of events that force the ADL to show up and to speak out. And so part of the job is calibrating and understanding when do you speak out and when is it a tweet versus a full-on statement versus you know an advocacy campaign uh like how do you you have to learn how to sort of calibrate appropriate to the offense and how to put things in some perspective because i will say i mean like the stuff is happening you said every single day and not just to jews to asian americans to african americans to other minority groups and so it's it's you, I do the job day to day. Yeah, you must have a very, very strong mind, I would say, or heart or spirit, because uh, having that as your day to day responsibility, I mean, it, it's something that not many people could could work through uh, on a daily basis. And at the end of your book, you actually say uh, that when you were offered this role, it was either this or it seemed like it was head to the West Coast and return to entrepreneurship. Yeah. Well, I had an opportunity, you know, when I, so basically to step back, as you were saying, I have been an entrepreneur, I've been in business a long time and I was working in private equity when I got recruited to, to work in the, the White House to run the Office of Social Innovation. The plan, the deal that I cut with my wife is we do it for a few years, then we go back to California and I was going to go either start a fund or run a fund. And I was in negotiation wow. with a big firm to do that. <laughs> and I got <laughs> this offer. <laughs> I took this job. Um, there you go. But look, like I like you, like I believe in public service. And I felt like a call to service. And it felt like something that mattered. 
And in all honesty, I thought I'd do it for a few years and then I would resume my life in business. And then the week that I started on the job was the same week that Donald Trump announced his candidacy. Wow. So it was like the wheels came off. Well, you and I met when you were at the White House yep. as the director of the Office of Social Innovation and yep. Civic Participation. Before yep. that, for people listening to this at home, Jonathan founded Ethos Water, which mm -hmm. is when you go to Starbucks, you know, that really, really good looking bottle. Yep. Uh, and you know that uh, if you buy that water, uh, a portion go to a good cause. Yeah. Uh, so you and I met back uh, when you were, and I remember walking in and meeting you, and it's yeah. like, oh, wow, the Office of Social Innovation. I had started a nonprofit, <laughs> Venture of America. So, of course, I thought maybe I can get some money out of the government. <laughs> 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 Which did not happen, but right. we became fast friends. Uh, so talk about your arc, because yeah. you had a, a wide-ranging career. You kind of dipped in and out of public service. You were yeah. in the Clinton White House. Yeah. You were back in the business world, yeah. and they managed to rope you back in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've always been motivated by, since I was in college, by wanting to change the world, which sounds a bit kind of glib or naive, but that was always sort of my true north. So when I was graduating, or when I graduated from Tufts, I went and joined the Clinton campaign and moved to Arkansas and worked for Governor Clinton in Little Rock. Wow. Well, and then, and, and then he won, which, you know, I didn't think he was going to win at the time. <laughs> You're and, like, I'm a genius. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> But uh, then I ended up going up to D.C. and doing international economics for five and a half years, like applied microeconomic policy with an emphasis on international trade and uh, investment in emerging markets. And that was great. And it was fun. Um, Did that take you all over the world? Mm -hmm. All over. Particularly, it was like a remarkable time. So like the mid 90s, you had the European kind of community becoming the European Union. You had, you know, Germany literally politically reunified in in the year 1990. And so you had this remarkable moment where as in 92, as again, the European Union really came together and moved to becoming an economic entity. It was remarkable. You had NAFTA and the emergence of free trade in the Western Hemisphere and Mercosur, which was is a trading block of Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. Uh, and then there was a movement toward a free trade agreement of the Americas. You had APEC came online. I mean, you know, China, Sounds like you were attending a lot of conferences. <laughs> a lot. I've been a lot of like done trade negotiations. You know, I worked on uh, APEC as ASEAN was coming into the fore, right? Which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which was an economic block. It was seven countries. Now I think it's 10 or 11 countries. Uh, and as uh, China was successing, or Hong Kong was coming out of, you know, as a British protectorate. Yep. And China was coming into, we were talking about, were we talking about this before, about China getting most favored nation status and yeah. joining the WTO? The, in fact, the, I remember when the GATT, the Joint Agreement of Tariffs and Trades, became the World Trade Organization. So I worked at the nexus of all this really interesting stuff. Well, yeah, it, it sounds like you were uh, right there at the forefront when the world was kind of knitting itself together into yeah. this world order. Um, and now you and I were talking but before we sat down about how it seems like that order is coming apart. Uh, it's, it's reversing itself. Uh, you talked about the dramatic impact of sanctions on Russia that many people in America probably don't appreciate what that actually means day to day in the Russian economy. Oh, yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. Uh, to your point, like, I think we all believe there was this kind of gravitational force called globalization that yeah. was inevitably yes. drawing us together. The reality is it 
globalization isn't an outcome, it's an intention. And it requires like will and work and it can be reversed as we're seeing. So we're talking about economic sanctions. Like economic sanctions are a kind of warfare and it may be invisible and you don't see it in midtown Manhattan, but in Russia, you know, the value of the ruble has basically dropped to Collapsed. almost zero. They can't get any hard currency. And because Russia has been cut off now from Western trade flows, they have like 600 billion in reserves around the world that they can't get their hands on. And so the value of Russian bonds is also going to plummet to zero, which is going to impact all these big companies. And it'll have ripple effects on emerging markets around the world. It's going to be harder for those countries in Southeast Asia, in South America, Latin America more broadly, to get access to capital too. I mean, frankly, emerging markets are probably pretty cheap right now. <laughs> you can buy it at quite a discount. But I think it's going to have all these impacts. And so for ordinary Russians, not only are there boys being sent to fight in a war that they don't understand because they all have family and well, friends in Ukraine. With, yeah, yeah well, nothing to do with. Suddenly, their purchasing power is de minimis. And so that's going to create all kinds of unintended consequences. I mean, just wait. Putin is being backed into it. Whether we, we might not be flying bombers into Ukrainian airspace, but believe me, we are backing him into a corner and it'll be interesting and maybe a little bit scary to see how he responds. Well, we, we all hope that uh, reason prevails and peace returns. I mean, the, the goal sure. of these sanctions is to elevate the pressure to a point where it feels like uh, he'll come to the table. Um, but you're right that, I mean, uh, that, that's uncertain. I, I assumed Putin was too rational an actor to engage in this sort of aggression. So, so now, like, this is the reality, right? So... By our means, by our like Western standards, by our from our American kind of calculus, it's irrational. But in his mind, who's aspiring to recreate like a czarist imperial kind of moment, he's acting rationally. And he's willing to sacrifice those soldiers and, you know, risk his economy to achieve this imperial ambition. So this is, you know, one of the things that I think we in the United States, we're all very sort of solipsistic and we see things that through our own story and our own image. But the reality is, is that we need to take these sort of tyrants at their word. We think they're not irrational, but in their mind, they're actually being highly rational. So when Putin says he believes in a greater Russia, when Khamenei says he wants to annihilate the Jewish state, you know, when she says like there is one China, like they mean it and we need to listen to them and we need to reimagine kind of our political calculus in light of what they're telling us. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you spend the 90s uh, helping establish this uh, world order. Uh, That's falling apart. Trade. That's now falling apart. So well done, Jonathan. <laughs> well, you know, we did. We, yeah. I mean, someone had to build it. Right. Um, you returned to the business world for. So I did that. Time. Yes. I got an MBA. I mean, I wanted to change the world. But then, you know, there was gridlock in Washington and I wanted to go. I saw business as the front as the front line. Yep. So I got an MBA at Kellogg at Northwestern and then went to the, be part of the Internet. And I joined a little pre IPO company called Realtor.com. Yeah. Which ended up being going public and being very big. I was like the assistant junior associate product manager. I was just north of the receptionist. Uh, but I learned how to build software products, how to manage teams of engineers. And uh, that's what I did. And so I ended up after a few years running the consumer products division of the company and you know, responsible for a whole line of, of products. But I missed public service. So my roommate from Kellogg, this guy named Peter Thum, had this idea to create a company, Ethos Water, which was bottled water at the time. It was a $15 billion category. It's really starting to grow in the United States. And yet there were a billion people who lacked clean drinking water. So the idea was, could you create a bottled water that would use part of its profits to help children around the world get You're one of water? the OG social entrepreneurs before it was cool. Well, it's, it's uh, <laughs> nice of you to say. <laughs> no, it's true. No, that, yeah. That's accurate. I mean, when we, we this word social entrepreneur, there's a guy named Bill Drayton yeah. from Ashoka and Jackie, Jacqueline Novogratz kind of down sure. the street here who talked about it. But few others did. Very few. There weren't classes at business schools. No. There weren't, you know, there was no B-Lab. There was none of this whole movement we have today. Yep. Um, but we took, look, we took our inspiration from people like Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield and Gary Hirschberg and Gordon and Anita Roddick and Yvonne Chouinard, these extra, who, who created like Patagonia and Body Shop and Stonyfield and Ben and Jerry's respectively. Because uh, there was that generation. Then there was, we were like part of the second generation, I would say, with people like um, Jeffrey Hollander from Seventh Generation or Seth Goldman from Honesty, this guy Dan Lubetsky. Oh, yeah. this company called Kind. Mr. Kind Bars himself, who's uh, one of our, our mutual friends. Mutual friend. You know, I, I tell a story about meeting him in the White House, and then he asks us, uh, hey, anyone hungry? And someone <laughs> says yes, and then he busts his jacket open, and he has Kind Bars all on the lining. Like I, I called it like Batman. It was like his utility belt. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I mean, he's always an entrepreneur. He's, always, he's got the Bat hustle. Batman hustles. He's got the hustle. So, And then the third generation of those entrepreneurs, I think, are people like um, – you know, Neil Blumenthal and the guys from Warby Parker or uh, Blake and the guy from Tom's and a, and the guys from Bonobos who have done a really smart job. Again, I think Peter and I had this innovation, you know, link consumption and cause you buy the water, you get the water. And then then Blake did it with you buy the shoes, someone yeah, gets shoes totally. or you buy the socks, someone gets the socks and so on. And I think that's a marvelous model. So Ethos ends up uh, getting acquired by Starbucks. We sold it to Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, and then and I worked there. Running yes. the bottle water business. So just random aside, we went and discussed this. Mm -hmm. So Howard Schultz runs for president or has an exploratory committee yeah. uh, for 2020. Yeah. Um, did you advise on that? Were you around the team for any of that? Jazz? I did not. So I've kept in touch with Howard. Uh, and I knew, look, like Howard has been 
like I so I learned so much from him. It was such a I have such gratitude for having the chance to work for him. Uh, but this was a long time coming. I mean, if you looked at even Starbucks, they they had a domestic policy agenda. They supported veterans. They supported boys and young men of color, health care to all their employees. They did the deal with Arizona State University, you know, free education, college education for yeah. Starbucks partners or baristas. So they like from education to veterans to healthcare. It was remarkable. Uh, and he's got so much passion and so much energy, um, and, you know, and a lot of hubris. But I say that with, you know, I say that as a compliment because well, to build a business like he did, you need a degree need of confidence to either build a company like Starbucks or run for president. Do you know I'm something done. about that? <laughs> At least one of those two. I don't know. I know something about um, so, so they got you back into uh, public service. You had a really plum job, I thought, like in terms of cool jobs in the administration, uh, uh, social innovation, civic participation. Yeah. One of the things you write about in your book that uh, I'm passionate about is a call to national service. Yes. It could potentially help depolarize people, make Absolutely. people see each other as like, look, like, you know, we live a little bit differently, but you're more or less just like me. Um, so you were part of an office that was helping to drive various organizations. What do we need to do to actually uh, reestablish national service? Look, I just, you know, I have actually never heard that phrase before, but it's right. Depolarization. Yep. I believe in that. And service is a strategy to achieve that end. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting. I believe President Biden and his, like, the Build Back Better bill, which I think is now DOA and they're trying to break it up. But he had dollars in there, like sixteen billion, to create a climate, a climate core of some kind. Look, the idea, like young people, like you at one time, like me at one time, they all at one time. At one time, we say that long time ago. Yeah, but like they want to change the world, and I think the the folks who are farther along should help them and give them the help create the space, give them the lane to do that. And national service is a way that it can be done. And so I just think there's something incredibly powerful, but it's going to take funding so that young people can actually earn a living or, or earn a little bit, if you will. Uh, and it's going to take creating the space to give them the opportunities, whether it's, again, in education or healthcare or with veterans, et cetera, to do good in our communities. Well, well the reason I ask is that I've been part of gatherings where they talked about national service. Everyone's like, yeah, 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 let's do it. Uh, but but people yeah. look at it and think, well, in order to do it at scale, you pretty much need the government because you do. the dollars add up pretty quick. Yeah, like the, the, the previous cost of the stipend was, I think actually today it's about 16500 meaning the government pays young people an uh, annual salary of sorts of sixteen five, And so the kids who do national service, man, they're not like staying at the uh, – you know, holiday at the Ritz, <laughs> even the Holiday Inn Express. They're sleeping on cots in the basement of the church. Totally, they're not. They're not flying United Premium. Like they're driving fifteen people in a twelve-person van. Yeah, and again, they're not eating. You know, at some fancy sushi restaurant, they're eating ramen noodles. But what's sustaining them and nourishing them is the act of building community. It's amazing, but it requires money and it requires both sides. You know, I think some people on the right still see national service as like a democratic really? bill clinton it seems so there are some that's odd it, there are some and i think there's some on the left who also like want them to do very specific things so but the best 
what I mean by that is there's a tradition of service like in our military yeah. that's derided by some on the left. And by the way, you know, faith communities have amazing traditions of service. Like oh, yeah, that's true. Missions. The, oh, yeah, like the Church of Latter-day Saints. If you've ever met anyone who's a self-identified Mormon, their commitment to service is unbelievable. So I think the left needs to acknowledge the power of like faith-based service and military service. And the right needs to see the power, the non-political nature of service of all kinds. Well, you know, it's interesting you raise this because I, I actually hadn't encountered resistance to national service uh, from, from the left. But as you say this, so one thing I did encounter, and this yeah. is just a story I'll share, is that um, I had started an anti-heat campaign and I wanted to use the American flag as part of it. And there was resistance among people around using the American flag. And I was like, guys, if we we don't use the flag, uh, then we lose. You know, it's like if, if you let, cert, uh, like, let's say a certain party uh, own the flag, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, yeah, like that's, that's bananas. Uh, it was an anti-Asian uh, hate campaign. Um, and so it, it was all Americans. And I was like, look, Asians are American. Like, you know, like, let's denote that in some way. And then there was resistance to using the American flag. And I was like, how else can you say that Asians are Americans or Asian Americans are Americans without some without the flag. Like I just didn't see yeah, any way to do it. This is crazy. So I was actually just having a conversation with someone a few days ago, and I said, you know, I believe in American exceptionalism because I do. I mean, I think America is so different than other nations before us, and we're an idea. And you know, there are other countries who are bound up in powerful ideas like France or China or or Israel or others. But what's so powerful about America is this idea that we're, we are not, although there are indigenous Americans, and we should talk about the way that they were treated. And of course, the economy was built on the backs of enslaved Africans. And that's a, that's a sin for which we are still paying. And yet, the power of America is the acknowledgement of our imperfections, the idea that all of us as immigrants or refugees or whatever the case, or former slaves can come together as one. And so... I think that's inspiring. And the people who would say that the American flag is somehow a political symbol yeah, yeah. just don't get it at all. Like, I'm sorry. W what hope do we have if we think that, that like the, the founding national symbol is somehow a problem? That, that was my stance as well. So, uh, you know, I, it's but that was one of the encounters I had where I was like, huh, like people really see this uh, a bit differently. And I, I, I think that. Um, I think part of it is uh, age, really. You know, mm. like, there, like there are people that are a bit younger than you and I who, who might have like a slightly different um, uh, framing of it. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. 
That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So after you leave the Obama White House, yeah. they managed to rope you into, uh, <laughs> not rope you into, I mean, it's an incredibly no. important. Ro- rope me in. <laughs> rope me in. Into, like, rope uh, me in. For sure. Um, to become the, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Yeah. And then Trump runs for office around yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, from your book, uh, it seems that there's been a dramatic worsening of uh, all sorts of episodes of hate, whether it's measured in terms of speech, language, social media, posting, all, all the way up through uh, violence and malicious. Yeah. I mean, the, the data doesn't lie. I mean, so just take anti-Semitism, which so often is considered the canary in the coal mine, like yes. it's a harbinger of much of, of equally and even more destructive forms of hate. You know, anti-Semitic incidents from 2015 to 2020 have left about 114%. And I know this because at ADL, we track anti-Semitic incidents. Yes, We have 25 field offices and we're tracking acts of not just violence and vandalism, which the police also monitor, but acts of harassment right, and bias, which might not catch the attention of law enforcement. So a kid is bullied at school, you know, an elderly person is yelled at on the street, like we get all those calls. Our staff investigated over 9,600 incidents in 2021. We have 400 full-time employees doing this work. And so just the number of raw incidents is way up. And by the way, again, like as kind of we were alluding to before, there's no question that right-wing extremism is driving a great deal of this. I mean, the number of anti-Semitic incidents like correlated directly to the Trump years. It just, like it or not, it just did, right? The numbers leapt up in the second half of 2016 once he won the uh, nomination. And like after election day, Andrew, it was like a straight line up. Terrible. And, and yet at the same time, you know, it's not like either side of the spectrum has a monopoly on morality. Like... We saw here in New York, in Midtown, last May, this spike in anti-Jewish hate around the fighting in Gaza, where Jewish people who were, were guilty of the crime of like wearing a kippah in public, or you know, look, you know, uh, being Orthodox, like wearing a black hat. We saw people beaten up in broad daylight in Times Square. We saw people assaulted, like in other parts of Midtown Manhattan. We saw people attacked in Brooklyn. Oh, and by the way, in Los Angeles and in Southern uh, Florida and in Las Vegas and in Chicago and in all these places, the attacker didn't say, you know, what's your opinion on the two-state solution? Or are you a quote-unquote Zionist? Like the people were identified as Jews and that made them targets. And the people who were beating them up, Andrew, to be crystal clear, they weren't, the assailants weren't wearing MAGA hats. They were, they were wearing like Palestinian kafias. And in, in Times Square, a guy was attacked and hit with a flagpole. 
you know, and it wasn't like a Trump 2024 flag. It was like a Palestinian flag. Now, I say this as someone who believes in a two-state solution. I say this as someone who thinks Zionism and Palestinian nationalism must coexist. And we need dignity and, and equality and safety and security for Israelis and Palestinians in two states. But it's undeniable to, or undeniable is the wrong word, but it's impossible to ignore the animus that's directed not against just the Jewish state, but all Jewish people. Uh, clearly, there, there's it's just hatred if you're attacking someone that's uh, on correct. the street for uh, nothing other than their faith, uh, their appearance. Yeah, I mean, look, it's interesting. I'm thinking about again. You were talking prior about starting this organization, the fight. You know, AAPI hate. Like, you might not like the way Beijing is treating the Uyghurs, or you may have questions about you know what happens to their tennis stars or democracy activists in Hong Kong. But that isn't an excuse to beat up elderly Asian American people in Queens or to, or to assault like a elderly Thai man in San Francisco and, and yeah, kill awful. him or to shoot women in Atlanta. Like, no, stop AAPI hate. Just like we should stop anti-Semitism, uh, period, full stop. I'm going to share uh, some stories from my upbringing. So I grew up in a predominantly white town. Uh, I was one of the only Asian kids. Uh, there were there were maybe two Jewish kids. Uh, and we both got picked on uh, a lot. Though I will say that the Jewish kid got it worse. And I didn't realize it because I was quite right. young. Right. Um, so I, I would get chink, gook, you know, uh, like go back to China, that sort of thing. Not great, obviously, if you're uh, like a no, 12, 12, 13 year old. And, but the, the Jewish kid, they tried to cut a swastika out of a plastic tray to give to him. Like it, it was like another level. Right. Um, and again, did not appreciate it because at the time I was like 12, 13, right. um, 14. But you, you said something earlier about how Jews are the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. It seems like when you have an environment that's conducive to hate for whatever reason that like the it the energy around anti-semitism is always higher or elevated and jews are the single biggest victims of like oppression and even genocide internationally there, there's yeah. something where there's a reason why the adl frankly like you know it was founded as a yeah. jewish organization um but then those things tend to cascade to other groups I, I'm just going to, again, use my, you know, intermediate school yeah. example as like the Jewish kid had it the worst. Yeah. And then there, there, there are others of us that got versions of it that yeah. was l like less virulent, but still uh, nasty. And I feel like, you know, that that's true uh, societally. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, for 2000 years, the Jews lived in exile. The state of Israel's is founding withstanding for 2000 years, the Jews lived in exile outside you know, their ancestral home in the Middle East. They lived in Europe, they lived in Latin America, they lived in the Middle East. And uh, wherever they went, they were the other. They had their own, you know, they didn't adopt Christianity. They didn't adopt Islam. So they had their own religion with their own way of praying in their own language and their own customs. And they were, I think we would use the term today, otherized, right? They were marginalized. They were typically not allowed to live, you know, whether it was the church or the crown or the mosque, they weren't allowed to live where the rest of the community lived. They weren't allowed to work in the professions the rest of the community worked in. And when things went wrong, and they always did, especially before like the advent of the age of reason and the enlightenment, the age of reason, when an understanding of kind of the scientific method and the things we take for granted today, 
when like there was a bubonic plague or there was a, a weather system or there was some other disease or whatnot, they blamed the Jew. I mean, they always thought that it was the Jew for not accepting Awful. Christ or not accepting Allah or for who knows what. And so the Jew made a convenient, because there were minorities of Jews all over, they were a constant convenient scapegoat. But as you were kind of just mentioning, I think, you know, anti-Semitism starts with the Jews. It never ends with the Jews. Yeah. And that lesson that you can't scapegoat somebody, that you can otherize them, it's easy to do with the Jews, then it becomes easy to apply to others. So I think that, you know, it's interesting, the ADL. So the ADL, I'll tell you in 30 seconds, the ADL was founded in 1913, around the time that a Jewish man was lynched. He was falsely accused, my name Leo Frank. He went from New York down to Atlanta to manage a family business. A young girl was found killed on the property. They immediately blamed the Jew. Now keep in mind that this happened at a time when Jews weren't allowed to work in many professions. They couldn't get treatment in many, you know, like healthcare facilities. The reason why you have all these hospitals named like Beth Israel or Cedar Sinai is because the Jews started their own medical institutions. They couldn't get treatment in other places. They couldn't uh, attend many universities. Quotas kept them out. Couldn't live in Their restrictive housing covenants prevented them from living in many places. So they faced what we would call, like in our parlance, you know, structural discrimination or structural racism. And this Jewish man is accused, falsely accused of a crime. I mean, he didn't commit it. He wasn't there, nonetheless. Falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, and sentenced to, to death. The governor of Georgia at the time, because he didn't have due process, intervened and commuted his sentence to life imprisonment. And the mob was so enraged by that act of leniency, they tore Leo Frank from his jail cell and they hung him from a tree. Awful. And while the body is still hanging from the rope, you know, the whole town gathers and holds a picnic, you know, underneath the corpse. And they take pictures, uh, they take photographs and turn the pictures into postcards and give them out as souvenirs. You can wow, that's inhuman. You can still see Leo Frank postcards all over the internet. They're all still out there. So in that moment, a group of Jews get together and say, we need to actually do something about this. They create this group, the Anti-Defamation League. And what's, they write like a, they write a charter, we would call it a manifesto. And in it are the words that they wrote, 1913, not recently, that we still use today as our mission statement, that its purpose is to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So what's so interesting about that is a hundred some odd years ago, the Jews in the United States were weak and vulnerable. They didn't have you know, social standing or economic resources or kind of political influence. Yep. Like their future was very uncertain. But what they realized was this idea that we're talking about, that in order to, in order to fight for the Jewish people, you also had to fight for all people. And that only when all people were safe could Jews also be safe. I mean, we're the only group out there of our vintage that has this, to use a term that's in vogue with the kids, this intersectional notion of justice, that you fight anti-Semitism and all forms of hate. So you're particular and universal. And so it's animated this organization for 100 plus years. So in 2020 or 2021, when we incubated the Asian American Foundation, we did that because at ADL, that's what we do. Yeah, and so to, to give people some background, uh, some prominent Asian American leaders were concerned about the 
incidents of hate and people being beaten and and in some cases even killed. Uh, and they called John for advice. And then uh, John rolled his sleeves up and helped and then helped inaugurate the Asian American Foundation, which as an Asian American, uh, I'm immensely grateful, but also think, wow, like we haven't had something like this until now. I mean, there was something of a, a void. And it, it is unfortunate that only when a community feels itself to be in the crosshairs or threatened uh, in terms of their family safety, then they gather together uh, and try to make a change. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right on a couple fronts. I mean, I think typically we, maybe it's human nature, you know, we take for granted what we have, like frogs in the boiling water. We don't realize there's a problem until it can be too late. So I think what's, but what's, again, we get back to what makes America great. It's creating the space and having a civic society, which is so kind of fertile and conducive to people saying, hey, we need to do something about this and doing something about it. I mean, the, the Asian American Foundation, they have raised over a billion dollars in incremental capital to fund AAPI causes from foundations, foundations, corporations, you know, it's kind of mega donors. It's amazing what they're doing. And, you know, I think if ADL and the Jewish community can share even a little bit of what we've learned the hard way, to help the API community or again, the African-American community or whatnot, I think, uh, you know, I think that's a blessing. So one of the most compelling stories from your book uh, that I found engrossing was a story of a guy named Damien Patton. Mm -hmm. And so Damien Patton's a, uh, young Jewish boy, kind of mm -hmm. lost soul. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then he winds up being radicalized mm -hmm. and joins a white supremacist group. Yep. Uh, even participates, becomes something of a young star and leader. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and it, it's obviously um, something that people don't even imagine possible uh, that where they didn't know he was Jewish. Yeah, that's right. And he was concerned that he'd be outed as Jewish. Like he brought one of his new friends home and then his mom's like what the hell you're like you're a skinhead you're jewish <laughs> and then he had to deny it um so i thought this story was so powerful and humanizing because what what it showed was that this radicalization uh can prey upon or or it 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 feels like a human need that people have yeah almost regardless of background that's right i mean i think people yearn for community right especially that lost soul, you know, is so eager to find a welcoming group where he or she can fit in. And in Damien's case, he was from a broken home, didn't have strong role models, found himself kind of attracted to gangs, first like Latino gangs, he had a friend who was Hispanic, and then eventually got pulled into the white supremacist movement. And it's extraordinary to think that someone again could deny who they were and get pulled into something so toxic and clearly like self-destructive, but he did. And not only did he get involved with them, he traveled from Southern California to Tennessee. They committed a crime. He was in the car with two adults when he was still a, a, a minor and they shot up a synagogue. You know, thankfully no one was killed, but not for lack of effort. And uh, they were arrested and they were 
arrested, indicted, and sentenced, but he was a minor. So as the two guys went to prison, he was let off. And then he went on to join the military, moved, found community there, eventually found out he was pretty good at coding, built a successful tech company, venture-backed on his way to an IPO in the burgeoning tech scene in Salt Lake City, where there's some really some interesting stuff yeah. happening, and uh, got but got outed. Some investigative reporter found out his past, which Damien had never come clean about. And he was outed, and he was humiliated, and he was literally fired from the company that he built with his bare hands from the ground up, and relieved not only of his responsibilities as CEO, pushed out entirely by the board. Yeah, so I, I think this is really important because this is about when you met him, when he yeah. came to your attention. Yeah. So someone in their distant past, their adolescence, is affiliated or is a white supremacist, yeah. uh, serves in the military, goes on to become a business leader, uh, years and years pass, and then someone produces uh, records being like, hey, this person uh, was a white supremacist, yes. has tattoos to that effect. Yeah. Um, and so if you just look at that headline, you just think, well, well, th this person's terrible because, you know, like that they, they were an active white supremacist. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this person had had like a, a completely different life arc, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I mean, he had a family. Yeah. Yeah. Which happened, obviously, after he was long uh, after. Yeah, yeah. Lo long after. And so then the company looks at him and says, well, you got to go because like we can't have like a white supremacist founder. Uh, you know, that that's going to like destroy the company. Like, we're, we're, you know, we're trying to go public. Yeah. Um, and then he's looking at it like, look, this is a part of my life that has like not been a part of my life yeah. for decades and decades. Yeah. And so when you were brought in to talk to him, you know, like it, and it was one of the things I admired about uh, both, you know, your account in the book um, and your work is that you treated him like a human being. Of course. Yeah. I mean. I don't know that I deserve credit for that. I think that's the basic. Uh, what happened was a friend of mine, because you know, I worked in Silicon Valley for many years, who was a venture capitalist, which is a Jewish fellow, uh, called me and said, hey, Jonathan, I know this. I'm an investor in this guy's company. It's a crazy story. Would you talk to him? So first of all, he had a valid introduction from someone that I trusted. Yeah. But I also called him because, like, you know, Nick Cannon, who's a friend, has this phrase that he uses, which I've wholesale adopted uh, and take credit for. <laughs> uh, he says he doesn't believe in cancel culture. He believes in council culture. And I think there's so much truth to that. So in Damien's case, yeah, he erred. Yeah, he sinned. But if you like, look, I'm Jewish. I believe that we're all created in God's image, but we're not God. We're imperfect and we err and we make mistakes. And the, the thing is, can you learn from those mistakes? Can you Are you willing to acknowledge the error, apologize maybe to those you've hurt, and repent? And so I called this fellow and said, it, and look, the first conversation we had, we, it, was a, it was a phone call. He was at an airport in Long Beach, and he was basically speechless. I say, I'm just calling to reach out, let you know I'm here. I'm happy to talk to you. And then we got on a Zoom like a couple days later, Andrew, and he was glassy-eyed, and trying to make sense of what well, was he, happening he, to his he'd life. He'd seen his reputation uh, destroyed and his, his life completely upended. The whole, his every, exactly. It was like he was literally in a building and the entire building was burning down around him and he had no way out. And then we talked again a week later 
and then a week later and a week later. And then the weeks became months and the months became years. And I've talked to Damien, not quite every week, but, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of weeks. And I did that because I've watched him evolve and grow. Not just, you know, what's the word? Like not just externally, you know, again, from a white supremacist who joins the Navy, who becomes a coder and an entrepreneur and a CEO, but like internally as a person who's reckoned with his past and resolved himself to do better. And I, I don't, I think as head of the ADL, like, yeah, I deal with big geopolitical issues and whatnot, but I also like, I'm a human being. And so helping him find his path has been one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in this job. Uh, I think council culture should be the new norm and standard. 100%. Uh, and it's one, uh, one thing uh, that I, I admire about uh, what you advocate in your book um, which is that, look, there has to be a path to uh, understanding or redemption uh, for people that want it. I mean, if someone that's doesn't right. want it. No, that's really important. Like, if you are a serial offender, if you are unwilling to acknowledge what you've done, what you're doing, if you will only listen to yourself and the counsel of the people that you trust rather than those who you've hurt, like, look, that's a different story. Like, I don't have patience for people who, uh, you know, continue to offend. But if you're willing to try, I think it's up to the rest of us to be willing to help you. It, you know, I don't know. I should say that for everyone. But I think it's my job. And I think it's those of us in public life, Andrew, can always do better. So we talked about how there was this wave of democratization and then it seems to be reversing. Uh, and, uh a woman I spoke to recently, Barbara Walter, wrote a book. Oh yeah, that suggests a civil war stuff. Yeah, that that suggests that social media might be part of the reversal. Yeah, uh, that there is something of a negative correlation between uh, social media adoption and democratization, which was a, a very, uh, you know, striking negative correlation. Um, you started uh, an anti-Facebook campaign. Yeah. Um, that was the biggest, most significant effort I've seen. Yeah, you got uh, dozens of major corporations uh, to get on board. What catalyzed that effort? So, first of all, I would just recognize like Professor Walter, like she's a professor at UCSD. Like, I really admire her scholarship, and her book is terrific. Uh, and I think there's something to what she said about the pernicious role of social media. So when I joined ADL, you know, again, I had worked in the Valley. I had worked inside Google. Like, I understand these companies. But I was seeing how Facebook was the front line in fighting hate. So ADL opened a center in Silicon Valley in 2017. I think we're the first civil rights group to have a physical presence. We were in Palo Alto Smart. off University Road. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I didn't. You know, I didn't put like some nonprofit fundraiser to run it. I recruited a guy from Reddit, the guy wow. who used to be VP for revenue products at Reddit to run it. So it's, it's staffed with software engineers and data scientists and programmers. And we engage on a day-to-day -day basis with all the big companies from, from, you know, from Amazon to Zoom, from like from Apple to YouTube, Google and Instagram. And of course, Facebook, we'll talk about that and Twitter and TikTok. We're working with the gaming companies, and the problems there are off the, off the fucking wall. No, oh, go ahead, man. You can swear Sorry. on this podcast. But they're off the wall. Uh, and the messaging platforms. So we work with all these different 
kind of arenas. But to the point that you were making and to what Professor Walter said, like there's no question that while many of them, and we work with them to identify hate speech and help them understand what extremists are doing, the toughest one to work with by far is Facebook. Wow. I mean, so we do annual- So you met with uh, Mark Zuckerberg? Many times. Yeah. And, and look, like there's a lot of good people there who mean well, I would say that. I have friends who work at Facebook. Sure. But the kind of group thing that happens there is extraordinary. And whereas a lot of the companies, again, none of them are clean. They all have their issues. But we do an annual survey of online hate and harassment. We've been doing it for years. The play, and the data is crazy. 42% of people who use social media say that they've been on, bullied online. 28%. This is our 2021 survey. We haven't done this year's yet. It's uh, probably 20, worse. It's probably worse. 28% say they've been systematically like continually bullied on or stalked or you know harassed online but the place where it happens the most facebook it happens on facebook three times as often as any other platform three times as often the instagram numbers are terrible too and while we brought this stuff to these companies again and again we had a situation in the summer of 2020 right after the death of george floyd where we were you know, my analysts watch the extremists. I mean, that's what we do. And we had extremists. They need a, they, they need a vacation. They all analysts. do. And yeah. lots of counseling. But we saw on Facebook groups the extremists organizing to disrupt the Black Lives Matter protests. And we brought that to Facebook. And they wouldn't do anything about it. Wow. I mean, the highest value there is really freedom of expression. But I don't think. Yeah, dude, it's freedom of money. <laughs> it's freedom of money. <laughs> I mean, that's, 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 <laughs> freedom that's, that's, of revenue. But like, you know, like my friend Sasha Baron Cohen says, I don't think freedom of speech equals freedom of reach. But they've allowed the lunatic fringe to go from the fringe right into the mainstream. And so I reached out to Derek Johnson, who runs the NAACP, and to Rashad Robinson, who runs a group called Color of Change. I said, yeah, we need, yeah, of course. We need to get organized. And so we launched this campaign. We called it Stop Hate, Hate for, for Profit. Profit. That's right. That's you know, right. Yes. Okay. So you kick off Stop Hate for Profit, which is a very audacious campaign. Yeah. Uh, and you do wind up with some major corporate. We had, I tell you what, when we started the campaign, we said, take, we started it in June. We said, take the month of July off Facebook. We told companies, don't advertise on Facebook for the month of July. And when we started the campaign, we had, we didn't have a single company lined up. I mean, it was very wow. audacious. Um, it's a little bit like my presidential campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Um, three weeks later, we had over 1,100 companies, the biggest brands in the world. Incredible. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, So why were Starbucks. they so receptive, do you think? What, like, I'll you, tell you exactly yeah, why. Because we gave them examples of like white supremacist and anti-Semitic and racist content on Facebook like flighted against their ads. Yeah, that's pretty convincing. So here's an Amazon ad, you know, next to a dis like a bloody truck that says, let's go get the next George Floyd. Or here's a Salesforce ad or a Verizon ad and so on and so forth. And you put that out there and Howard Schultz says, I don't want Starbucks advertising alongside the Nazis. But that's what Facebook was doing. Wow. And, you know, like I've talked to them many times. I had a conversation once with Mark and he said, around all of this. I think maybe that's in the book. And he said, you know, Jonathan, a few years ago, n all of the hate content on Facebook was user reported, he said to me. Today, 88% is, is caught by our AI, 
before users even see it. So I think we're doing pretty good. And I was, and I said, okay, well, I used to be an executive at Starbucks. We didn't get to say 88% of our coffee doesn't have poison in it. So we think we're doing pretty good. Yeah, especially if you imagine the number of messages they're talking about. I mean, you have 12% totally. out there, 12% of an enormous number is an enormous number. <laughs> yes, that is the law of large numbers. It's huge. And as much as we knew then, I mean, you know, the way we got the concessions, all these companies came off. And then we organized with Sasha and Leo DiCaprio and Selena Gomez, the campaign to get celebrities off Instagram, Kim Kardashian. They all joined us. So for a week in August, they all got off the platform. Maybe they were grateful not to have to post for a week. Yeah, they were. I did hear that. I heard that people like, oh, my God, thank goodness. But it also is important to them. Like, it's important to their brands. So they engage with their fans. So those two things led Facebook said, okay, we're actually ready to talk. And they did what we asked. They hired a VP for civil rights, like we asked. They started classifying Holocaust denialism as hate speech, like we asked. They took off white supremacist groups, like we asked. They, they released the results of an audit. They agreed to do an audit. I mean, they did a bunch of things. It's not nearly enough. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, what do you expect? And stuff is difficult. Like the, this is the most sophisticated platform in sure. the history of capitalism. Yes. They will earn $120 billion this year, like a 24% net margin. I mean, yeah, you know, if the balance was reversed where, look, they're making more money by getting that 88% up to 99.999% as opposed to less money, like, you know, they'd get it right. You are entirely correct. Like that's exactly the right calculus. So the problem is, as you're saying, the incentives are totally misaligned. There's no regulatory oversight because there's a thing in the law called Section 230. And they have these- Written look, before Facebook was long, a, was yeah, a company. Yeah, written in like I 1996, I yeah. think. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's this hyper libertarian ethos inside the company. And many of us might self-identify as libertarians, but there's a problem when that libertarianism involves, again, using this product and the product to literally not just target and stalk, but to you know cause physical harm to people, which we've seen happen on Facebook and on these other platforms. And you know the reality is all I would say, Andrew, to your point about the how do you get it tonight? What if it were you know 99.9% increase their revenues? They took the Nazis off, like. You know, uh, think about J&J, &J, the big pharma company. So when they had a Tylenol scare in the 80s, right, where a few bottles of Tylenol were tampered with in Chicago, like they, they took every freaking bottle off the shelves, every bottle off every shelf in America and didn't put them back till they'd reformulated or redesigned the packaging. And it turns out that was probably not even like it wasn't even there. They could have argued like, look, this is not something that we need to, uh, you know, respond to at this scale. Correct. Yeah. Um, but they did that. Or I, you know, I used to be in the beverage business. We were talking about that. Odwalla is a, you know, ready to drink juice brand. And they had a situation where one bottle in the Bay Area, this is in the 90s, had, it was, it's a non-flash pasteurized juice. So you can get, you know, things in it, if you will, like bacteria. Whatnot. And a toddler drank a bottle of Odwalla and got E. coli and died could be lethal for a little kid. Terrible. And so what did Odwala do? They took every bottle off every shelf in America and redesigned the production process. So if Odwala can do it, if J&J &J can do it, 
literally one of the most innovative companies in the history of business, should they should do what every other business does. Take the product off the shelf and fix it. Like knock the Nazis off the platform. Like it isn't that hard actually. You know, interestingly enough and in a timely way, there was an announcement yesterday by Facebook that they are now allowing Ukrainians to say that they want to murder Russians or they want to kill Putin. You know, they said they're now allowing that because of the war. Like, I don't want Mark Zuckerberg deciding what kind of hate speech is okay or not okay. Like, you wouldn't allow a, you wouldn't allow a Ukrainian to go on the uh, I don't know on NBC or in the New York Times right. He wants to murder all Ukrainians. Like, Facebook should just abide by the same rules, the same kind of standards that every other media platform abides by. It does really boil down to Mark, doesn't it? I mean, what I hear about that company is that it's very, very centralized slash top down slash all the major decisions get get funneled through Mark. Now we're get now we get to like again these broader issues. You know, it may seem off topic, but Mark controls sixty four some odd percent of the shares. He has these crazy class A shares, give him all the voting rights. He's purged the board of all the independent directors. So there's no fiduciary responsibility there. It's the Mark show. And uh, that kind of power vested in one person, I don't know. Clearly, it's not good governance vis-a-vis yes. -vis, like the corporate world. And again, I think it vests, the company is too big and it has too much power in any one person. Yeah. Uh, if I had won the presidency, I was going to, to – um, I was going to go to war with the social media companies, honestly, because I just didn't see a way that you could try and – bring the country together that didn't involve a uh, very, very significant overhaul of their business practices and, and model. Just repeal Section 230. Make yeah. them liable like every other business. If you did that and just that, now, look, it may create some, there may be some, it would create some changes, right? Like maybe I wouldn't have as many, a restaurant wouldn't have as many, you know, Yelp ratings or something. But the reality is, is we can see the consequences of unbridled, unfettered, totally unregulated um, social media. And we're living with the consequences today. So a significant portion of the book is uh, trying to guide people towards steps that, that they or we can take. Uh, and that you make an argument that I think most people appreciate that, look, there are these uh, attitudes and statements uh, and then there is a progression yeah. where then that leads to actions that yeah. ends up leading to that's right uh, to systems. And then uh, eventually it can reach a, a point where the unthinkable happens as yep. it has happened in other parts of the world. Yep. So what can the average person do if they want to try to keep our country as free of hate as it can be. So I use the I use in the book this construct we call the pyramid of hate that you're referring to. And it's this notion that things can go from from bad to worse to catastrophic, you know, from biased attitudes to prejudiced actions to systemic discrimination to kind of acts of violence to genocide. Uh, and I I mean we've got lots of examples in history where this is what happens. So then the question comes, well how do you stop hate to yes. tears? So there's a heuristic that we use at ADL that I'll share. It starts with number one, speak out. So when you see hate happen, speak out. And whether it's in your Facebook feed 
or like in the locker room or on in the workplace and on zoom or at the water cooler the dinner table like speak out when you hear hate happen and you know i to the earlier point of the conversation like if you're a liberal speak out when you hear progressives doing it if you're a conservative speak out when other conservatives are doing it like our ability to call out our people on our own team is really important and that's part of how we depolarize here is acknowledging again our own kind of frailty um, so number one, you got to speak out. Number two, I think you got to share facts. Like this is what you do pretty well. We don't have enough of it. There's too much of a, we have to dial down the drama, right? Like don't forward that crazy email from your like mother's neighbor's uncle, you know, who's a QAnon enthusiast and all the, like we need less drama, less hysteria, less hyperbole, focus on the facts and talk to people you know, remember the golden rule of doing doing to others, right? Talk to people like you want to be spoken to. So I think sharing facts is really important. And then finally, showing strength. And for me, showing strength is not just being an ally and showing up for others. That's part of it. It's honestly, Andrew, it's like what you've done. It's leaning in and engaging in democracy. So whether you choose to start a nonprofit like Venture for America, whether you choose to run for office like you have done several times, create a new political party, and maybe to those who aren't quite so ambitious, because you're pretty ambitious, look, like, go volunteer. Yeah. Go run for the local school board. Like, go show up for the library. I mean, like, look, democracy is not a, is not a, a foregone conclusion. No. Neither is it a spectator sport. You got to be in it to win it. So I think for me, showing strength, our job at ADL, we would say, don't just lean in to fight hate. Lean in to kind of create hope and build like what Dr. King called the benevolent com or the beloved community that we all want. Well, that that is the vision. You know, the, the, the struggles right now, I mean, you can see it with uh, what's happening internationally in Ukraine. You can yeah. see it in terms of the surge uh, of hate that you're dealing with every day. Uh, talking about social media running amok uh, in yeah. part because our government is asleep at the switch, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, um, totally. We're in an era of kind of institutional challenge, institutional retreat. Yeah. Uh, and one of the big goals is like, how the heck can you buttress institutions or reinforce them in an era when people are just losing faith and confidence in them right and left? Uh, and there are, there are a couple of things that I, you know, so there are three things, you know, that I try mm -hmm. to, to push people on. And, and this is something, you and I are probably aligned on a lot of this stuff. So one, it's okay, let's just try and make our institutions better, stronger. Number two would be to try and modernize them, um, which we don't seem to do enough of. Yes. Uh, you know, it's like you have this ridiculous antiquated Section 230 that didn't yeah. conceive of social media as like the freaking, yeah. you know, quasi uh state that 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 it is it's like, yeah. you know, like like why aren't we tackling that and then trying to start new efforts or institutions that may be able to earn people's trust um but but this to me is like the massive uh challenge of, of, of this era is that a lot of institutions are coming into question i think social media is part of that too because you used to have this uh curtain up where it's like hey you know i you know, so let's say I was a CEO or um, uh, I was a public official. And then yeah. you, don't, you only see me when I came on camera. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. Now, now there's like this 
peering behind the veil and it's kind of brought people down. And, and to some extent, that's positive because you're like, OK, you know, it's like humanized. But then on the other hand, it's unfortunately really hard for folks to feel like um, like these institutions have their best, best interest at heart because that they're, uh, you know, seeing differently in different ways. Um, I, I can't help but think, and when I was reading your book, I felt this. It's like, I, I feel like uh, what ADL uh, stands for and wants to do, it, it's very uh, kind of hand in hand with successful institutions, whether that's families, mm -hmm. schools, religious communities, yeah. because it kind of takes a collective to to lean in and say, like, look, uh, there's no reason for us to hate each other. We're all yeah. human beings. Yeah. Like, you know, we all want 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 and desire totally like, deserve the same things. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as you lay it out. I, I, I like I deeply believe in institutions. I do. I believe that institutions tend to kind of develop and evolve and accrete over time. They, of course, they can be transformational in some things. They can be incrementalist in others. But the institutions are like the, like the tent poles of our shared society. Like they're crucial. That doesn't mean we leave them alone. Like we need to continue to, to modernize and renew them. And yet at the same time, we also have to acknowledge when sometimes they're inadequate. Like again, a two-party system that becomes so kind of corrupted by special interests, it doesn't create the space for other voices to be heard. And they allows for a kind of capture. So it's interesting. You think about number one, how do you take these institutions which have been so essential to what we have and modernize and renew them? And at the same time, how do you acknowledge when we might need to create the space to reinvent those institutions? The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, are they institutions? I don't know. But our democracy oh, is institutions. <laughs> well, they are, but they're also they're like edifices. Democracy yeah. is the institution, right? Yeah. The elections are institutional. And so, like, I really appreciate what you've done uh, and how you forced a conversation that needed to be had and that I think is far from over. Well, uh, I, I want to close with uh, something that I, I think you and I also see eye to eye on, which is that uh, that we have to do more to, to de-radicalize individuals. And, yes. and, and, and this is one reason I admire your approach, where there is one thing you can say uh, is to um, say, for example, stop, uh, stop hating other people. You have various public awareness campaigns. But then there's the more difficult and I would suggest uh, more pressing work where you actually get into these groups and communities of people that have been corrupted and subverted yep. by by hate and then bring them back. Yeah. Um, uh, on the podcast and like, gosh, it was a number of months ago now, but I had uh, Christian Picciolini, mm -hmm. who started an organization called Free Radicals. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like we have to be investing more in those kinds of organizations. Yeah, I agree. And I think we've got to recognize the fact that in an environment where, again, social media has allowed you know the fringe elements to move and the extremists from the margin into the mainstream, it's made it easier, sure, for many of us to connect with old classmates and family members in different places. It's also allowed these extremists to reach a much broader audience than was ever yes. humanly possible. And that extremism, whether it takes the form of, you know, the anti-vax people or the QAnon crazies or, uh, you know, white supremacists or radical anti-Zionists, these other dangerous groups, I think we've got to create space to bring people back. So ADL is very committed to this work. 
whether it's one-on-one with someone like Christian Piccolini, who, not sorry, like Damian Patton, who's in the book. Yes. Christian is a friend, and I so admire what he's done, which is a very similar path to the one that Damian walked. Yes. Um, or someone like Abdullah Entepli, who's in the book, who who's grew up in Turkey, you know, educated in that kind of Islamic system, and learned to hate Jews and to hate Israel and the Jewish state, and then started to realize that it was all a, a line of BS. And when you actually meet people one-on-one, you realize they don't resemble the stereotype and they don't hew to the demonic image that's been created. Yes. So whether you can be de-radicalized from extreme you know, white supremacy or extreme Islamism or any of the other dangers out yeah, there. Anything that leads you to dehumanize and Yeah, to dehumanize someone. and demonize other people. Um, so we believe in that work. I respect what Christian has done. There are other groups like Life After Hate, which are doing really important work. Something I think a lot about is how do we help them to scale? Yes. How do we give them the support, the systems? How do they use technology more effectively so they can reach a much wider audience? Because I could counsel Damien once a week, you know, for an hour, but there are so many Damien's out there. If we could reach them and find them, I can't spend an hour a week with every one of them, but I think there are ways we could help yeah, we, we have to force multiply there because, uh, and, and this is something that uh, I would love to see happen, is that you take someone like uh, Damien Patton, who uh, now would completely renounce all of the beliefs that he's held course, at that point. Of course, um, the, the problem is that there's still an aversion to, uh, I think, um, working with people. You've even had that in their past. Uh, and if someone renounces that and then wants to help others do the same, I feel like we should be bestowing all sorts of resources uh, on them. I mean, I think about someone like Christian, but it, it seems I like- could I could not agree more. Yeah. This is so important. Like, again, if someone is willing to take the risk, yeah. acknowledge their error, put themselves out there, we should be embracing them. We should be lifting them up. We should be looking for ways to give them support. Uh, I think this matters enormously. And so we're really, really committed to that work. Well, John, I couldn't believe it was your first book, but it was a great one. Uh, It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. Uh, If we do stop it, you're going to be one of the big reasons why. Thank you so much, my friend, for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew.